Our guest today is a longtime friend. His name is Brad Huddleston, and uh, I'm just delighted to have him with us today. Brad is an internationally respected speaker, a consultant, teacher, and author on important issues such as technology and culture. He has worked with universities, schools, churches, and law enforcement, and has spoken to hundreds of thousands around the world on both the advantages of well-used technology tools and the dangers of the growing trend toward technology addiction. Brad has an ongoing collaboration with the Bureau of Market Research and its Neuroscience Division at the University of South Africa. He has a degree in computer science and a diploma in biblical studies and is a credentialed minister in the Acts to Alliance movement in Australia. He's also a frequent guest on radio and television and author of a couple of books. One is Digital Cocaine, A Journey Toward Eye Balance, and the other, The Dark Side of Technology restoring balance in the digital age. Brad and his wife live in the beautiful Shenandoah Valley in Virginia. And Brad, it is such a delight to have you here with us today. Thank you for joining us. Uh, Melvin, as you mentioned earlier, uh, you and I have been friends for a long time. You and Sandy have just been such good friends to Beth and me. And here we are again, uh, teaming up. And uh, it's just, and I mean it every time, Melvin, I appreciate you. And I thank you. It's an honor to be here. Thank you, Brad. All right, let's jump right in. Our audience is uh, really our target audience is parents, mm -hmm. educators, and legislators. Mm -hmm. So these are the folk that we try to talk to and we try to help bring some value and perspective to their worlds and to their work and the decision making they make. So today our focus is really about technology and helping our students and our schools be better. And so several questions. Uh, the first one I have for you is this. We live in the information age where info technology has revolutionized how we communicate, learn, and pretty much do everything. Would you talk more to us about that, especially addressing the rapid advance in the development of technology and how that is changing our world. I was very fortunate to have a, a very close relationship with my great grandmother. I'm named after her. her. Her last name was Bradley. So I got her name and the conversation went like this on her, on her side porch as she sat in the swing, remember those swinging chairs. And uh, look, I was very young, but I remember her looking up and seeing a jet way up in the air. And she said something like this, are there really people in that thing? And, you know, she just couldn't fathom. So to answer that question, if you're a digital native, which if you're a, a you know, a Gen Z or a Gen, not a Gen Z, but yeah, Gen Z. And then the alpha is what they're calling the, the really young ones now. Okay. So Brad, for all of us that are past 50, uh, mm -hmm. talk, talk, real, talk real language to us. Okay. Gen Zers are those born from 1996 to about 2012. So it's the current crop of students. So their parents would be the millennial age, the generation above them, the, the Gen Xers, the grandparents above them, and then you got the boomers. So when you talk about the current crop of students and then the really young ones that are coming up, Gen Alpha, 
they're what are called digital natives. They've known no other world than yeah. what we have now. Their brains literally uh, through neuroplasticity are wired very, very differently than ours from our generation. We are what are called uh, digital uh, immigrants. So we immigrated into this movement. Where I think I can be helpful to people is that I am also, even at my age, uh, I'm 57. I am also a digital native in that when I was in high school, someone donated a, a Wang computer to our high school and we formed a computer club and I was programming even in high school, which is pretty rare back in those days. So I went on to get a, a computer science degree. So I've had one foot in that world, you know, since I was very young. So I get both worlds. I get my great grandmother's world and I get this one. So we are wired very differently. We learn differently. Uh, some of that's not good either. I'm sure we'll get into that. So it has changed at such a rapid pace. My grandmother couldn't fathom that there were actually people in that little tube with wings on it. Same thing. Our uh, generations above us cannot fathom how these kids can spend hours and hours and hours on their screens and the way they communicate. They can't fathom why they would sit at the table and text each other instead of talk. So clearly the worldview, their outlook, the way they communicate, totally, totally different. And it's created quite a big gap. So I have found myself studying this and running around the planet for the past 20 years, as you read from my bio. I've been international uh, until COVID. Then it forced me to, to stay here in the U.S. So I've split my time between overseas and here. So I view things from a global perspective. But I can tell you this, Melvin, um, we are all connected to the same pipe. So these statistics that we'll talk about are generally the same around the world, wherever the Internet is. All right. So many people seem to have a sense that there is this human life and then there is an AI or artificial intelligence life. Uh, and these things are interfaced or even perform uh, on, you know, they, they are working together for performance of technology. People need to know that technology is programmed, right, by people mm -hmm. to cause machines to do certain things uh, like the functions of a keyboard or, you know, a calculator, you push buttons and it adds or multiplies or whatever you do, but that's all programmed stuff. Is that pretty much true of all the technology, just for those of us that aren't so into technology? Well, I want to show you the cover of an academic work that I wrote for um, a couple of years ago, Ethics in Higher Learning, and this is called subtitled Values-Driven Leaders for the Future. This is from GlobeEthics.net there out of Geneva, Switzerland, and they deal with ethics. They contacted an, quite a number of us who do research and who write books and ask us to contribute a chapter on the ethics. And so they asked me to deal with digital cocaine. They recently contacted me, and I just wrote an essay for a new book of theirs, uh, and it's all about artificial intelligence. So I was tasked with AI in education. So we are transitioning from AI 1.0 to 2.0. So basically what all that jargon means is we're all used to going to our email, typing an email, and then all of a sudden we go to Facebook and ads pop up related to what we just typed in an email. Mm -hmm. And then if you shop on Amazon, for example, we're all used to uh, suggestions being made in emails based on the searches that we made and so forth. That is a, a large database using neural networks and things like that um, that was designed to make our lives a little bit easier and help us to shop and things like that. Now it's bled over into privacy issues. So now what I was writing about, we're going over into AI 2.0. So if you think the current world has gone mad, 
with technology, wait just a year and, and watch what happens in the classroom as AI 2.0 gets introduced. So I was writing an ethics essay, for example, in China, everybody looks to China because they want to be the world's leader in AI. So in their classrooms, the students will come in in the morning and they will put a little band on and it's an EEG. Um, and it's monitoring their brain waves and it has these little color codes on there. And they can actually tell if the student is engaged. They can tell if the student is daydreaming. And of course, all this is being fed into a monitor for the teacher who can then correct them and draw their attention back to the board. So th this is also being sent to their parents. So their parents can help them deal with that when they're at home to do focus. So we're, we're entering into a world um, that has, in AI 1.0, <laughs> has not worked out that well during the pandemic uh the grades have fallen i was just in a meeting this morning with a gentleman who's running for the school board here where we live and i asked him what sets you apart uh, why are you running and he said well he said during covid uh and this hybrid online learning my child went from an ab student to an f mm -hmm. and clearly it wasn't working now i've heard that all over the world and in some of our cities here in america 50%, over 60% of the students were not even logging in and turning in their assignments, but they were online. So we're entering into this world where it's captivated people, but it's not necessarily enhanced. Now, my personal position on this, Melvin, is that it can be a great thing. Obviously, I'm not against it. We're using Zoom to great effect. Yeah. Problem is not Zoom. We have a thing called Zoom fatigue. People aren't addicted to Zoom. In fact, they want to get away from it. What's addictive, of course, are video games, social media, pornography. It's the entertainment side of it, but it's had a detrimental effect effect on the on our education because that's where they're spending the bulk of the time. The parents assumed this wasn't true for everyone, but in large part that it, this was a walk away solution. You put the child down in front of Zoom or whatever in Google Classroom, whatever platform that they were using educationally, and they could walk away, and the child would just do their work. There are a whole lot of brain issues connected to that. Their prefrontal cortex, this area right behind the forehead is not fully developed. That's where you can uh, put the brakes on, as it were. You can um, police your own behavior. That's only partially developed in a child. That's why they need a teacher uh, to, to correct that. So there's this massive move around the world, including here in the U.S., to get kids back into a physical classroom as quickly as possible. So while the potential has always been there, to help with technology, with our education, it has not worked out that way. And I submit it's because we haven't implemented or used it properly. I think there's some things that, that can be improved that will help bring those grades up. That mixed with the analog world would be a very, very good solution, I think. Mm -hmm. That's very interesting. Uh, wow. Uh, you know, it is amazing the, the advances that are being made in technology all the time and uh you know those of you that are kind of out there on the cutting edge and staying fully engaged and in tune and abreast uh it's kind of like the car shows you know you you know what's being designed and what we're going to see on the road in a year or two and the rest of us we just look out the car window one day we're driving down whoa what's that you know and i think a lot of us you know out here in the flyover country, uh, so to speak. And most parents, most uh, most people, even a lot of educators that, you know, that's not really their area. And so sometimes even feel a little bit uh, intimidated by it uh, and so forth. So 
Um, as important as technology is in the world today, it is not as important as the development and nurture of our children and families. First of all, do you agree with that statement? And secondly, um, talk about that from a perspective of the parent and maybe the educator as well. Nurturing, I do agree. Um, nurturing the family by far, if you want a child who is educated properly, they have to be in a certain atmosphere. Their emotions have to be in a certain atmosphere. Uh, their cognition will depend on their emotions. We know conclusively from neuroscience, as you mentioned, I'm in collaboration with the neuroscience division at the University of South Africa. I do lots of extensive research with law enforcement in Australia. I can tell you that when you put a child in front of a screen, even educational software, and again, I'm not anti-technology, um, but the reality is you're hyper-stimulating that child's brain, meaning it's too much for them. And when you do that, the brain goes on to overload with a neurotransmitter called dopamine and habituation can happen very quickly. And I have some brain animations I can show you that I created to help illustrate this because addiction is addiction. It works with chocolate, alcohol, cocaine, you name it, but it also works with technology in the exact same area of the brain. The side effects are a little bit different. Um, with an alcoholic, they would have certainly emotional problems, but their liver would start to deteriorate. With a smoker, same area of the brain would get addicted as, as the, the person who drinks too much alcohol, uh, but their lungs would suffer. With digital addiction, it's emotionally. So especially children who are on a spectrum, there's a lot of uh, research going into children who are autistic or Asperger's. And it, when you give them screens, it, it's very deceiving because sometimes that's the only way a parent can get relief. That child appears to be focused and quiet, but the catch 22 is that dopamine for them is way, way, way too high because of the way their brains function. And so over time, they can become not only angry, but aggressive. And so we're starting now, these things are starting to bubble up in the older children who are autistic. I know these things may seem controversial, but this is true science, Melvin. I mean, this is not something that is just uh, subjective. I have lots of data here that I can show you. Uh, on the screen, and I'm happy to do that. But I care about this. To come back to your question, you have to ask yourself, what is best for my child? Some, some children uh, can handle a certain amount of digital interactivity educationally, and it's mainly because the parents are truly monitoring them. But the truth is, not very many parents do it, but for the ones who do, and they keep them laser focused on the education, the kids don't get addicted to it. Uh, for example, no one has ever come to me asking for help because they're addicted to word, Yeah, <laughs> you know, and it's a great piece of digital software, um, but they have come to me asking for help for video game addiction. And so it's caused these other problems too. The assumption has been if we integrate video game technology with education. So after I wrote that ethics piece, I ended up in Toronto, Canada at the the online the World Conference for Online Learning, where the video game creators were there to meet with university people to gamify the curriculum. Mm -hmm. And I was the only one who <laughs> spoke and said, you know, you, you really might want to reconsider this. All the data shows that, you know, cognition goes up very briefly and then addiction sets in and everything collapses. And I showed the data. I showed the brain scans and so forth. I was not rejected at all. I thought for sure I would upset someone, but they actually invited me back. Um, 
So you have to ask yourself, what's best for my child? If your child is not responding positively, even to education software, which they usually don't, um, it's it's quite all right, morally and ethically for you to say, you know what, my child is going to uh, function in an analog world until later, until their brain develops, not not forever, you don't have to keep them out of it forever. But for now, until maturation happens, that's what's best for my family. And you monitor their emotions. It comes back to the emotions. If they start to have a change in the emotion, if they start to get angry, things that you don't normally see in your child, or it's usually exacerbated. I mean, kids do get angry. We all get angry. Yeah. Uh, we all get depressed. We all get down. But we're talking about once addiction sets in, it exacerbates things. And that's what you go by. And then you use that as your criteria to say, you know what? My child would function better with curriculum that is that is analog f- for now. And we'll test this other out a little bit later. So, yes, it comes back fully to the family. Hmm. Great, great response. Thank you for that. Noah Webster Educational Foundation is an educational organization that is committed to improving our schools and our educational system. We focus on core principles and best practices in education. And I've got a couple of questions for you on that. So what do students need to learn at home and at school in order to become good citizens? That's the first part. And the second part is what essential skills are needed in order to understand, use, and develop technology that makes life better and the world a better place? You know, we're going to go old school on that first one about being good citizens. Um, I was fortunate, as a lot of people my age would be, to be taught uh, that America is a good place, not a perfect place, but we are always striving to improve. And when we um, do wrong, we make those wrongs right. But we have a love for the country. Uh, America is an exceptional nation. All that's been torn down because of the current Marxist revolution that's going on with CRT and political correctness and things like that. One of the best things that you can do is take full responsibility at home for your child's education. And, you know, in the old days, that's what parents did and it worked and it can be a landmine. There are good teachers at public schools, private schools. There are also ones who are, you know, ideologues. They, they want to push an, an ideology. So when you train at home, I was very fortunate that my grandparents, my parents divorced and love my parents. They had their issues. So my grandparents stepped in and they taught me values. They taught me morals. They taught me how to look someone in the eye and, and say, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. Yes, sir. No, sir. Now I'm from the South. So we use those kind of manners, but wherever you culturally, wherever you're from, your, your manners should be used. That, that took me a long way, but the moral foundation uh, was not given to me at school because there were, even back then there were questionable things in biology class. They were starting to introduce Darwinism. My grandfather had a long talk with me about that, um, about understanding all these different you know, ideologies. But we come from a little, as you said uh, in my bio, I'm a minister. So I, I believe in a different model. Not that there's anything wrong with me understanding all the different models because sure. I did. And I was glad that I did. But morally, um, you know, there are issues there. Um, and so it guided me. But that came at home and I was taught to love this country. I was taught to vote that I needed to very carefully consider the issues of the day um, and to get out and, and, and exercise my freedom to vote because I owe that to my country. 
And after traveling after all these countries, uh, Melvin, I can tell you, we've got the best thing going here in the U.S., as many problems as we have. So all that came from home, though, because at school, even back then, it was starting the patriotism and, and some of the morals that we grew up with were starting to be undermined. So the home really needs to be the first place the children are educated, and that's going to require a lot of time. But make that a love affair. Um, parents, I think sometimes are saying, oh, that intrudes on my time. How am I going to find the time? Look, you'll find time for what's important. We all know that. Absolutely. And uh, one of the greatest joys that you can have is watching a child grow up. And then when you watch from afar, they make decisions on their own. Uh, and you make makes makes you so proud of them because, you know, you put that in them. Uh, that's what you do. So the second part of your question, what essential skills are needed uh, in order to understand and use technology properly? I'd like to show you these brain animations to, to give some context to my answer. Sure. There was a, uh, a fantastic book um, that came out a long time ago, and I'm not even sure that it's in print, but I want to show the cover. I like to document and footnote everything that I do for credibility's sake. Sure. Uh, Dr. Archibald Hart uh, wrote a book called Thrill to Death, How the Endless Pursuit of Pleasure Ends Up Leaving Us Numb. So remember that term anhedonia because that's going to come up again in a few minutes. The irony is, Melvin, the more we stimulate the brain over time, the more it shuts down and we start to lose emotional feeling. So we feel real good when we're stimulating ourselves with drugs or the digital domain or whatever that may be. But over time, it becomes harder to feel. So you end up doing more and more and more. And it leaves you ultimately with a medical condition that's been known about for a long time, but it was only found in drug addicts. And then when the digital revolution started, they started to find this condition in young children. And that's what Dr. Hart was documenting in his book. So what I did is I took his information, I designed some brain animations to sort of help understand how this works. That little dot right there is called the nucleus accumbens, or it's the pleasure center of the brain. And whenever we stimulate ourselves, like I'm stimulating myself right now, having this conversation with you, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's I'm enjoying my time with you, Melvin. I always do. Yeah. When we do that, we we release dopamine, that neurotransmitter, and it makes us feel good. And you see it lighting up there because on a brain scan, it will actually light up. I'll show that to you in a few minutes. But if you'll notice, over time, there's a wall that's forming there. What happens when we overstimulate our brain over time, the brain starts to build up resistance or tolerance. You're habituating to it. And so it's fighting back, trying to push out all that extra dopamine. And the wall grows. And as it's pushing out, we don't like to be cut off from those feel good feelings. And so we do more and more of that activity, whether it's drugs, traditional drugs or the digital domain. And the brain just keeps fighting us back by building that dopaminergic barrier. So we have to do the activity longer, harder, and more intensely to saturate the wall, to spill over so that we end up getting our fix. And so that is how addiction works. And that's how uh, parents can understand that over time, the heads of their kids stay down longer and longer and longer. It takes more and more to get them out of the bedroom when they're playing a video game. And, you know, they say just five more minutes or another minute. And the reality is the parents are just as addicted as the children. When that wall starts to get a certain height. Now, look, it's not a, it's not a literal wall because I speak to children in all these schools. Sure. I had to make this very simple. It's actually around it. It's a chemical reaction and it's, it's enzymatic and all this, but I just built a wall, ran those animations past some doctors and got the, the thumbs up to make sure that it was accurate. And it is once that wall starts to get to a certain point, the symptoms start to appear. So the symptoms of digital addiction, the first one would be anger and sometimes aggression. And that means they're habituating to it. You can actually see this on brain scans. I'll show those to you in just a few minutes. 
But eventually what ends up happening is the wall just continues to grow and grow. And eventually it gets so big. And if you'll notice that dot will go gray on yeah. a brain scan, it stops lighting up, which means the activity has shut down and the person becomes emotionally numb. Have you ever heard kids say, I'm bored, I'm bored, I'm bored. And the parents go, how in the world can you be bored? You have more stuff than I ever had growing up. How can you do, or, you know, you, you say, okay, you can, you can play your video game for 30 minutes and then go outside and play. Well, they fight you over going outside to play because video games will produce this much dopamine. Being outside with nature produces this much, which is actually the normal amount. But if they've got a wall, they have anxiety if they're not constantly penetrating that barrier. Does that make sense? That's where the yeah, anxiety yeah. and the anger is coming from. But here's the educational component to that. Cognitively, you can clearly see the grades go down once the addiction sets in. But that would be true of any addiction that they suffer. The, the problem is it works with their phones and there's no stigma. We have stigma against cigarettes now. Uh, we have stigma against cocaine and heroin, but we have not had any stigma from our digital devices. They've only been encouraged. Mm. So it's been a daunting task for me for the past 18 years to talk like this and give these lectures around the world, but we care about the students. So what you work, for at home to answer your question is about an 80 to 20% ratio, 80 analog, 20 digital. And that is after the child is between 12 and 14 years of age. Mm. So where I get that from is, is research, of course, but the tech executives out in Silicon Valley, not all of them, but many of them send their children to Waldorf Steiner, which I know you're going to be familiar with Steiner. I've spoken at one. Um, those schools out in Silicon Valley are full of tech executives, children, and they have a rule, no technology at school. They frown on it at home until they're about 12 to 14 when the brain, uh, you know, matures enough to be able to have some resilience. And even then they shy away from the entertainment side of it and let them have the educational part of it. So it's a daunting task, but at home, you have to put more emphasis on analog activities like family. See, the brain responds, Melvin, radically differently with you and me being face-to-face -face than it does here on Zoom. If you and I were sitting in a coffee shop up here in the valley where I live or down there where you live, and we were having a cup of coffee, and Beth and Sharon were going at it, and, and or Sandy, I'm sorry, and, and you and I were going at it really hard and enjoying it, our brain would secrete endorphins like crazy, and there would be this pleasurable feeling. And it happens to a much, much less degree when we're doing this over Zoom. And if you spend too much time doing it, the dopamine then becomes an issue based on that. So at home, we need to have an, an emphasis on reading uh, non-digital books mm -hmm. and uh, being with family, playing board games, card games, doing as much homework as you can in the analog world, using the, the platform uh, educationally um, as a delivery mechanism. But when I wrote on the, in the ethics book that I was showing you, mm -hmm. some of the things I said it's fine to listen to a lecture online and have it delivered that way, but have the students look away from the screen and take their notes on paper. It's the best of both worlds. So I'm not anti, but as much as you can integrate the analog world, the brain is going to respond in a much healthier way with much lower levels of dopamine to keep that wall from going up. I hope that made sense. Yeah. Yeah. That's very informative. Wow. Okay. So thank you for that. Here's another question. As our society has become more blessed and obsessed 
with technology, we are discovering that there are inherent dangers that come with excessive and understained use of technology, especially by children. So you've been talking about that, but mm -hmm. talk to parents and educators about some of the research findings on this subject. Sure. Um, attention deficits. This is always, this always comes up in, in my lectures. Uh, lots of research uh, about that. So consider this, this article from the Cleveland Clinic. The headline here is Preschooler Screen Time Linked to Attention Problems. Researchers found that by age five, five children who spent two hours or more per day looking at screens were 7.7 .7 times more likely to meet criteria for a diagnosis of attention deficit hyperactivity disorder or ADHD than children who watch screens for 30 minutes or less each day. Uh, Dr. Victoria Dunkley has done a lot of research finding the exact same thing. And there's just scores and scores of, of data to show that. So the problem that we have, Melvin, is that every parent that I speak to, and I'm not put, I'm not saying this to make parents feel bad. I'm honestly not. It's just human nature. Every parent believes their child is the exception. Yeah. They really believe their child can handle it when obviously they can't. We're, we all have limits to our brain. Some will get addicted more quickly quickly than others, but everybody gets addicted. So when you, when you see all this medicine being doled out, it's disturbing. Um, yeah. because the first, if I were a doctor treating that, the first thing I would do is put them on a detox for six weeks. This is what is done when, when you can get parents to do it. Most just won't do it. Um, it would drive them crazy because their kids would just, you know, be in their hair and that babysitter has become too convenient. And again, Melvin, I judge no one by by saying this it's just the culture that we have you know come into we've been blindsided by this because in the early days we thought this was going to solve a lot of problems it just turns out that smoking was bad for you you mm -hmm. know if you know what i'm saying on the analogy there yeah so yeah. some of the other research that i'll point out sleep loss is a massive massive problem amongst kids so let's just have a look at that and some of the emotional problems we keep coming back to the emotional issues here screen time and insomnia what it means for teens the National Sleep Foundation's 2014 Sleep in the Modern Family poll found that three in four teenagers and 96% of teenagers between the ages of 15 and 17 bring some kind of technology into the bedroom. That's the key there. About 80% of the problems that we're talking about on this webinar happen in the bedroom with the door shut. In total, the average adolescent gets up to nine hours of screen time per day. Per day. And so what are the consequences of all this sleep deprivation? Sleep deprivation during adolescence can cause problems with mood, emotion, and academic performance. Teens who don't sleep well are more likely to have problems with their peers, and chronic sleep loss can lead to a weakened immune system. And, and here's the problem, depression and suicidal thoughts. Depression is off the charts, and so is suicide. It is The numbers are staggering, and people are having a hard time drawing the link between that and a kid's smartphone. But Apple knew about it because their investors put a lot of pressure on them in one of the iOS upgrades to include that tracking software to limit them. Now, it didn't work because there's always around ways around it. Kids will get around it. Adults will just after a while turn it off. So it was a good idea when it came out. But I suspect someone asked me, Melvin, why would Apple's investors who know that they're making boatloads of money off of addiction, why would they encourage Apple to curb digital addiction? They know they're going to lose money. And I don't really know. I'm not privy to those meetings, but I have a guess. 
my guess is, is those investors, many of them are grandparents and they still actually like their grandkids and they've seen the depression. They've seen those stats that I just showed you and many, many more. That's just the tip of the iceberg. So they have a position of power at Apple to put some, some pressure on them to build that software in to track them and cut them off after a certain amount of time. But here's the problem. Do you honestly think that a child will stop after just 30 minutes if that's the safe limit? I don't. Then that's why in the article they said they're getting nine hours a day, but 30 minutes is the actual limit. So, uh, you know, you can't tell a kid you can play video game for, for 30 minutes. They're proud that they log thousands of hours with Fortnite and World of Warcraft and Minecraft and all this sort of stuff. They log thousands of hours and their brains look horrible. So I hope that I answered that, uh, you know, some of the research yeah. is it's it's daunting, but it's not insurmountable, Melvin. Mm. So you say about the brains looking horrible. And uh, so, I mean, can you actually see that kind of stuff in a brain scan? You can. Um, I'll show you a series of brain scans. And I sourced these from uh, Dr. Daniel Amen's Amen Clinics. I mean, I just got them off Google Images, but I, a lot of us know who Dr. Daniel Amen is. He uses a technology called SPECT. And it stands, stands for single photon emission computed tomography. It's just a measure of activity and uh, or the lack of activity. And what that is, that's a baseline of a healthy brain. And so if you suspect that someone has an unhealthy brain, you scan it, compare it to that normal one, measure the deviation, and you can tell whether or not the brain is suffering damage. So the first brain scan that I'll show you is someone who smokes marijuana. And you don't need to be, you know, a neuroscientist to figure out why they're speaking slowly processing things slowly and saying crazy things like it doesn't bother me when clearly smoking marijuana does bother you. So uh, cocaine, that's what a cocaine brain looks like. And uh, imaging, brain imaging shows that digital addicts brains look like cocaine addicts brains. So those holes that you see there, Melvin, the brain doesn't actually look that way if you were to remove it from the skull. Uh, what that is, it's a measure of the activity or the lack thereof. So the neurons aren't firing. Uh, the chemicals have changed. And so those holes means those parts of the brains have shut down. Uh, and they're obviously their emotions have changed. Their personality have changed. They'll do anything they, they have to, to get, to get that drug. So that is the meth brain fairly similar. So let's go back to the normal brain or the baseline brain. This is the heroin brain. And you can tell those deep, deep pockets there where activities is missing. That drug came in uh, through a needle and then the last one I'll show you is someone who is addicted to pornography, which is the worst one of all. Mm. And that drug didn't come in through the lungs, didn't come in through a needle. It came in through the eyes and it stimulated the brain just like any drug would. And the brain from that screen responded. So I can also show you what a Fortnite, uh, I'm sorry, a Minecraft brain looks like. Um, but I also want to let you know there's there's good news in all this. These things can be reversed if you catch it early. And that's the that's the key. But some of these, you know, do you know what the average age of a video gamer is? Take a guess, Melvin. Hmm. Uh, I'm going to say about 14. The average age of a video gamer in the United States is 35 to 44. Wow, really? Yeah. It's a dad problem. And so when they come to hear me talk, they'll say, oh, I came because I need help with my child. And I say, I came to help you uh, because of the average age is that. And mothers are just as addicted as their daughters are to social media. 
So we're getting ready to teach a biblical worldview class here. And I'm not targeting kids because those numbers are so low, targeting the parents. When I have these digital cocaine seminars, I don't target the kids, although I'm in schools a lot, but much less during the pandemic, obviously. I've been doing a lot of school talks online, but I, I cherish the parent meetings because they're the ones with the problem. And if they don't model that to their children, the children are just going to follow suit. All right, so let me show you these other brain scans. This is a neuroscience study, and my source is just ABC's 2020 news program. And they were studying uh, the, the video game Minecraft. And so they chose three children. And these are triplets. And the uh, Noah, the guy, the kid on the right, his brain looks very different from his unaffected brother and sister. So if you notice, there's lots of color in the unaffected brother and sister. That means the neurons are firing, the activity's normal. But Noah is a Minecrafter, very addicted, and this child's personality has changed. He used to be normal, he used to be pleasant, he used to be happy and nice, but that's a screenshot of his mother trying to get the game away from him to put him in this neuroscience study. So he's acting a lot differently than his brother and sister because his brain looks like that because a wall has formed, the dopamine can't get in, and when you try to take the source of the dopamine away, his drug, he gets very ticked off. So I want to show you the good news. They, his mother took Minecraft away from him. And as far as I know uh, of anything I've ever been told in 20 years of talking about this, this is the only time that I've ever heard of a mother actually taking a video game away from a child. I'm telling you, I've had a daunting task speaking to hundreds of thousands of people, and I've never met a parent bold enough to actually take technology away. When their child gets that bad, you can't just you know, limit. Uh, it's it's like saying, well, look, I'm going to give you two lines of cocaine instead of three. You, you just can't do that. doesn't work. No, Lord, no. You have to detox. So that's what they did to the child. They sent him off to summer camp with no technology. They did horrible things to him, Melvin. They only let him swim. They only let him hike, play tennis, just awful things. And in just <laughs> three weeks, 21 days, they brought this child back into the lab. They rescanned his brain. And here's the good news, Melvin. Look what happened. Wow. Look at his face. He's enjoying tennis. It being outside no longer bores this child. Yeah. And his cognition is much higher. But notice it was analog, non-digital that did that for him because at his age, he obviously can't handle Minecraft. Now, Minecraft has been built. I hear parents say it all the time. They 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 regurgitate the standard line from Mojang. Well, Microsoft bought it, but it's educational. They have to think deeply and build things. But because it's a screen, it doesn't matter the content. The screen is overstimulating that child's brain, and it's just too immature. So his grades will suffer. His emotions obviously will suffer. He's left him angry. But the good news is, in a very short period of time, by taking it away, not limiting it, not reducing it, but taking it completely away, the brain reset. And that is, I don't want to leave... Uh, this audience depressed <laughs> yeah, uh, without any hope because it can be turned around. Is it easy? No, it is not easy. It is not, but is it doable? Well, you saw the proof there. Absolutely. Mm. So I think you pretty much answered the next question I was going to ask, but let me go ahead and spit it out here anyway. What okay. recommendation do you have to offer in respect to technology used by children at various stages of physical and emotional development? So in a way that's, okay, you, you say take things away, don't let them have more than half an hour and so forth. But, you know, in respect to use of technology, 
and now there's, you know, there's the side of it with the parents, you know, the games and the stuff that, like you said, the babysitters, but also beyond that, when we talk about education and, and actually learning platforms and so forth um, for the different age groups and stuff, talk to us a little bit about that. Well, look, this is going to sound harsh, but I'm going to go back to the reason why the tech executives send their children to Steiner. There's a reason why they wait until they're between 12 and 14 before they introduce any technologies. It's the creative side of their brains being developed. The brain wants to, at that age, uh, function in an analog world where it's slow. They want to take it in. They have, when they're really young, they have what's called sponge brain. This is prior to the brain going modular. These things are very complex. And if you put that brain in an artificial environment, things go haywire. And that's why the children's brains are wired so much differently. But if you'll just wait, you'll have a very intelligent child. Many of those kids, after they go through Steiner, they're the ones that are really smart. The ones that had technology completely withheld, or even for the most part. And then they go back into the tech industry and run things. So the tech executives know that Steve Jobs' children never used the iPad. And uh, people are shocked. Now, that's documented. Um, that I didn't. That's not an internet rumor. You can fact check me and, and find out that I'm correct. Um, you can fact check me on the New York Times and they will back it up. Uh, that And that's true. And the reason that I tell people that Steve Jobs withheld the iPad and they never use is because he loves his, well, he's dead now, but he loved his children. He doesn't love your children. He loved his children. It's up to you to love your children. And so he withheld it. And they would sit around the table uh, at night, nobody ever pulled out technology and he would read books with them and they would talk about history for long periods of time. They just stayed in the analog world. He did not want his kids subjected to all this stuff that I'm talking about. Yeah. All of us who have computer degrees know what this stuff does. I've been affected by it. So I judge no one, but more solutions, Melvin. Um, I get this from teenagers a lot. They'll, they'll push back at me in schools and they'll say things, look, I have to have technology to do my schoolwork. I have to know how to use technology in order to get a job. And to their surprise, I think, I say, you know what? I agree with you. I agree with you 100%. You absolutely do. But let me explain how to use it once you come of age, once you are in those early teen years where you can have some. This is what I would recommend to you. If I were to grab the typical student's phone or tablet from anywhere in the world, I would find educational things on there like Google Sheets, Google Docs, Excel, PowerPoint. But I would also find... Fortnite, Google Classroom, Netflix, Minecraft. I'd find Snapchat, certainly TikTok. I'd find Word. I'd find Instagram, pornography, and I would find YouTube. If I were to separate those things that are causing the problems from those things that are actually useful, this is what it would look like. It's those things on the left that are causing the problem. And again, no one's ever come to me and asked for help because they're addicted to Google Classroom or Word. They get in and they get out. They've used the internet for a very good purpose, but it's boring compared to pornography or video games or social media. So they get in, they do their work and they get out unless they have a, a phone. So this is the next thing. When a student is studying, they cannot have any phone near them. They cannot have any music playing whatsoever. And there's neuroscience behind this. I can show you that I can show you that the science behind it. The, the brain is, is multitask. Well, it's not actually, we can't multitask. It's switch tasking and it's causing a detrimental effect. Even classical music, I get that one all the time. There's been thousands of studies to show that it's detrimental 
to academics to have any kind of music on whatsoever. So the question becomes, what do you replace it with? So let's say you take that step like Noah did. And you take away those things. In fact, for him, for three weeks, he had nothing. As far as I, I knew, I know from that research study, he was at camp. But what do you replace it with? Well, you do need to replace it with about 80%. Things that will bring you peace of mind. Things, uh, if you are a, a meditation or a spiritual person, uh, we live in beautiful Blue Ridge Mountains. I say, get outside and hike and do these things. Be a reader of, of analog books and be with people face-to-face. There's something so healthy about getting together with people. We have a a phenomenon that's very real and diagnosable called Facebook depression. So while these kids have 5,000 friends, they're depressed because the brain does not respond the same when you are interacting with people online as it does when you are face-to-face. So this is daunting. It's big. In that animation that I just showed you, I didn't cut out everything. I kept a lot of things, but it's the things that are actually useful. Uh, But you have to make some hard decisions and put family first, put brain health first. You could get a scan if you want to, but all you have to do is look at those pictures of Noah and you can clearly see there was a before and after reaction. You don't need to scan your brain to figure out if it's helping. Detoxes always help. You know, Brad, it's interesting as I've been listening to you. uh, And of course, we're talking really kind of focusing on the children and all that Mm -hmm. stuff. But I hear adults using those very same terms. I hear them around me all the time. I probably have used them some myself um, because all of us live in this digital world. Mm-hmm. And, you know, sometimes we feel like, you know, we just have to get this done, have to get that done. We are driven by some kind of a task and way too often uh, some form of technology is part of what we perceive as the solution to getting it done. And so mm-hmm. that keeps driving us back into that. And, uh, and you've given us a lot to think about, uh, not just myself, but I mean, all of us, I mean, adults, grandparents, I mean, how many grandparents are there that spend hours and hours and hours on Facebook just because that's their connection to the world. And it's so quick and convenient. They can sit right there in their home and in their convenience, they don't go anywhere. And they're having all these conversations with all their friends. They're real, but they're also not quite real. Mm-hmm. And, and I think, as you said, the brain responds differently. And I think, you know, there is a fact that, you know, a lot of times we do all this communication through digital technology, and it is easy to feel very lonely, even though we're talking to everybody. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I will leave the audience with this. I mean, we can talk about this all you want to, Melvin. I, I would say sleep is so important. And as simple as this is, consistent sleep. And my wife, I have to credit her. I know you would credit Sandy with your well-being because she's probably, you know, helped you so much. Beth has gotten on me. And when I finally matured and stopped getting angry at her and listening to her, I realized she is my help me. And I should probably take advantage of that. Yeah. And uh, so what she did, she challenged me. I said, honey, you know, we're we're not. We're not spending enough time together. We're not spending enough time. And, and I'm a minister. I'm not spending enough time in devotion and, and prayer and things like that. And she said, well, I have an answer. 
And uh, she had thought about it. And I said, well, what's that? She said, we need to go to bed early. And I'm thinking like nine or 10. And she goes, no later than eight. And I thought this precious, cute little wife of mine has lost her mind. <laughs> but as it turns out, she was absolutely right. So we made some hard decisions. Now, I'll be out late tonight speaking. So I will compensate. I'm not going to get up early or go to bed early tonight. But when we're in control, and this is about 70% of the time, we go to bed between seven and eight. And we're up at three. So I want to just show you a couple of things that I think will help. These are changes that I have made, but I judge no one, Melvin, because I've been on the other side of that addiction fence. I mean, horribly. So I have compassion for people. I just want to help people. So consistent sleep. So this is some of the, the, the best information that I could present. Uh, school age kids, six to 13 years of age, need nine to 11 hours of sleep. Mind you, no technology in the bedroom, a dark bedroom, just sleep, no music playing. The teenagers need eight to 10 hours of sleep. Young adults need seven to nine, as do adults and the older adults. This is a sleep monitor that I have of myself. And can you see, Melvin, those dark blue ridges down there? Yeah. That's, that's deep in REM sleep. And we cycle uh, in and out of that about every 90 minutes. There's a pulse that comes out from the back of our brainstem that controls this. And if we get eight hours for you and me, we would need eight hours of sleep. And if you totaled up those dark blues, which is the deep sleep, and if it totals about 40% or more of your night's sleep, the toxins have flushed out of the brain that get collected during the day from stress. The wiring has come right. All the chemicals have come right. And, and you just feel so very good. And so there's another thing I want to show you. No music while sleeping and be finished with all screen time um, three hours before bed for children and an hour for adults. And I want to show you why I had challenged a teacher that instead of grading the assignments, this was an Apple school. So he had an Apple, uh, a tablet and all the kids had tablets. Everything would get aggregated on his and he was grading papers, you know, and assuming because it was education, it wasn't affecting him, but he said, I'm not sleeping well. I said, well, look, an hour before you go to bed, read a novel on paper. And he came to me the next day and he goes, I, or a couple of days later, and he says, I tested you. And I didn't know if he's being rude to me or mad at me or what, but he was happy uh, when he's, when I said that. So what were you talking about? And he goes, oh, no, it was awesome. So I just want to show you this. If you'll notice, this is a little bit different type of sleep monitor, but he said, I was grading assignments on the iPad right up till 10 o'clock. And look, it took me until 1230 before I got into deep sleep. So the next night I opted to read a novel printed on paper right up till 10 o'clock. And he says, look, I immediately went into deep sleep. And the reason is simple. All those chemicals that get released from overstimulation from the brain, it takes about three hours in a child, about an hour, hour and a half for an adult for those things to flush out so that you can sleep properly. And that's one of the best pieces of advice that I could give someone. And for parents, no screen time before school and no screen time before work. And the reason is you'll suffer what is called post-stimulation attentional drift. All those chemicals are stimulating and it causes your attention to fragment. And so if you will just save your brain reserve for school or for your work, so don't check social media when you get up, don't do any of that sort of thing, you're going to be much further ahead than anyone else in terms of you, your sponge brain and what you can, uh, you know, take in. And so unless you have something else, I just have one more thing I want to show you that is so critical. Um, there's a neuroscientist who discovered in terms of ADHD, the only thing that really extends it back out is reading. 
but not on not on the Kindle or the iPad. The cognition is much lower when you read the same content on a screen. So what we do when we get up in these wee hours of the morning, I just want to show you what we do. Um, and I, I attribute this to my wife. So we have our quiet time and our reading. And that's my end of the couch. Beth is over in her chair. And if you'll notice, there are no phones there. There are no screens there. It's I've been reading a bunch of Charles Spurgeon books. There's a Bible. There's a journal. There's a bunch of highlighters. Everything there is analog, a traditional dictionary. I don't use the, the dictionary on my phone. I, I went back to the one I got in when I was in middle school, junior high school. And I just sit there and we read for about 40 minutes. And then we we have some some meditation time, prayer time. And then we, we go to the gym. Exercise has had to become a big part of my life. I had health issues. All that's been undone now. But notice all that's analog. And then I come down here in the studio. And obviously, um, I have a nice studio and I have screens everywhere in here. And they come on. But by four o'clock in the afternoon, when I'm in control of my schedule, all this stuff, including my phone, is off. That's it. So we do watch some television, uh, but obviously not a lot because we're in bed very early. Now, that's a decision. And, and look, I travel all over the world. I travel all over this country. I can't do that every night. But you have no idea how much less anxiety that I've suffered and emotional turmoil because I've suffered all that stuff. And I still do from time to time. I mean, life happens. Bad things happen. But my periods of peace and inner peace have just, in the last several years, has allowed me to do better writing for articles for magazines and for books and things like that, Melvin. And so I hope that's helpful. These are hard decisions in a digital world. I use a lot of digital technology. I mean, I'm in here using a lot of stuff. I know how to use this stuff. I think pretty well. Yeah. Um, but it's not the center of my life anymore. Uh, it's a good tool. I put it back in the toolbox early in the day and I'm out. So I hope that helps. That is fantastic, Brad. And thank you so much for taking time to share out of your own experience and your expertise. Um, we're excited to share this with all those who, who follow and uh, hopefully it'll really bring value to a lot of people.